A few years ago, I was working as a math teacher, and I was in the break room at the school, and I was talking with my friend Fred. We were warming up our uh, stuff in the microwave, getting, getting ready for lunch, and uh, Fred, incidentally, is not his real name. Um, and we were talking about this, this co-worker that we had, whom I shall call Mr. Jerkface. <laughs> <clears throat> And so Fred and I were talking about Mr. Jerkface, and um, Fred says, I have to love him, but I don't have to like him. Have you ever heard that before? I have to love him, but I don't have to like him. Because this is sort of a typical way that we as Southern Christians tend to look at things, isn't it? You know, we, we acknowledge that the Bible requires that we have some sort of affection for those around us who are quite difficult to love and we have to have some sort of a positive attitude but it's so hard isn't it and so we tend to think about some sort of a love that doesn't really require like loving our brothers would is really easy enough as long as we get to define what love is right what exactly is the love that the Bible requires for those of us, uh, for, for these people that we have in our lives that are really quite difficult to love. How would you define that love? What does the Bible expect of us? We're going to see two things in this passage today. We're going to see what brotherly love is not, and we're going to see what brotherly love is. And so as we begin, I invite you to, to imagine a scene in which there are two priests there are two priests back in the Old Testament times, and each of these priests looks as though he is a holy one of God. There is the first priest that we'll talk about, and he is bringing his offering to God, and he brings the firstborn from his flock. He is the sort of a guy who takes the very first of what he has in expectation that God is going to continue to bless him, and he brings that to God as his offering. And then there is the second priest, and he brings some fruit that he has grown. And the holy God looks at the first priest and looks at the first priest offering, and he is pleased. He looks at the first priest's heart, and he sees that this is something that is given as though he appreciates what God has given him, and so he is giving his offering. He loves God. He has faith in God. And he is giving a good offering because he is giving the first fruits of what he has. And then the holy God looks at the second priest. And once again, his outward appearance is that, that of, of a good priest. But, this, but the holy God looks closer than his outward appearance. He looks down deep into the second priest's heart. And he sees that there is something that is wrong. There is something that is wrong with the attitude in which his offering is brought. And that is actually refle reflected in his offering as well. He doesn't bring the first fruits. He just rather brings some of his fruit. It doesn't seem like it's the very best offering for a very, very good God. And so when the, when the holy God looks at this second priest, he realizes that there is a problem and he does not accept the offering at all. He rejects it. And what does the second priest do? He seethes 
in anger and hatred. And he refuses to even look up from the ground. He is so angry. And God treats him very gently, really. He he treats him as though a father might treat a son that he wants to correct. And he says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And the second priest doesn't answer. There's no repentance. There's only indignation in his heart. Well, not long after that, these two priests are out in the field. They're away from the sight of their parents. They're away from the sight of the holy God, they think. And so no one is going to know what happens. And jealousy starts to rise up in the heart of this second priest. And anger starts to rise up in his, in his heart. And he probably says something like this in his mind. It is not fair that his offering was accepted and mine wasn't. And in this fit of rage, he rose up and he murdered the first priest. He was also his brother. And so his brother's blood soaked down into the ground. And amazingly, God shows such restraint. He shows so much diligence as he deals with this situation. And he he comes to the second priest and he says, "Uh, Where is Abel, your brother? I don't know him. I'm a brother's keeper. What do you think I am? Am I supposed to keep up with my brother all the time? He really just, it's a strange answer, isn't it? It really just kind of implicates him further. He is boldly defiant. He is completely rebellious. It's like he's saying, who are you, God, to be asking me all these questions about what I'm doing? And so there's one good priest. His offering was one of faith. He depended on God with this childlike sort of a faith. He he appreciated God's blessings, and his name was Abel. And then there was an evil priest. His offering was not a faith. He wasn't grateful, and he couldn't be troubled with bringing anything other than a cheap offering. And when he was confronted, how did he deal with it? He dealt with it with, with anger. He dealt with it with hatred towards God. He was incensed that God would dare to question him. He was jealous of his brother. And he had this hatred towards his brother that ultimately came from down deep in his heart. You see, the reason that Cain hated Abel isn't so much of what Abel did, it's because he first hated God. Cain hated God, and the whole situation with Abel reminded him of how guilty he was. And out of that hatred for God, he struck out at that which was made in the image of God, his own brother. They were brothers. They had the same mom and dad, but it's like they were from completely different families. There was Abel, the good priest, and he had faith that was a lot like that of his parents. He believed in the Savior who was to come, this, this Savior who had been prophesied by God in Genesis 3.15. And he responded to God with 
repentance. He responded to God with gratefulness. And then there was Cain. If you were to, to describe him and his family, the best way to do it would be to say that he was the seed of the serpent. He was a child of the devil. Because you see, one of these children, Abel, was the spiritual child, if you will, of the woman. He expressed repentance and faith. But on the other hand, there was this other child who did not do that. And his response towards God was simply that of hatred. He was like his father, the devil. We shouldn't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Why does John say that here? I think there are two reasons that John brings this up. The first is because of the overall thrust of his letter. Now, we've talked about this a lot before. We're in, we're in the third chapter of, of 1 John. You guys already know kind of what is going on in this book. There are some bad people, some bad teachers who had entered into the church, and they're teaching some things that are wrong. We have been calling them the Gnostics. And these bad teachers have a lot of strange beliefs that they are passing on to the, the church. And John is writing this letter in order to correct them. And so John gives three essential tests for Christianity. He says that you need to have the right doctrine. You need to have the right beliefs concerning the thing of God. You need to obey God's commands. That's the second test. And the third is that you need to love. And so specifically, this passage right here that we're looking at today involves that third test, which is repeated several times within the book of John. We have seen it before. We shall see it again. And, this, and the question is simply this. Do you love your brothers? Do you love other people? And if not, there is a possibility that you may not be a Christian. You see, it is very typical for people to come into a Christian church who don't actually love God. Some of them may even become teachers within a Christian church. And they are really there for people to like them. They, they are there because they like the power and authority. They are described by Jesus and, and, uh, uh, as wolves in sheep's clothing. They appear to be sheep. You can look at them all day. You can see these outward appearances, and you would say these are good Christians. But then every now and then... They do something that would make you question whether or not they are really sheep. There are these people who tend to get very jealous when someone else is the center of attention. There are these people who get very angry when they are required to do the things that the Bible says. Why does this happen? Well, it's because of the same thing that was going on with Cain. Why did Cain do the things that he did? Ultimately, it's because he didn't love God. He hated God. And therefore, he struck out when, uh, in jealousy and in rage, he was, being, he was being questioned. He was being told to do the things that God required him to do, and he did not like it, and he, so he struck out at his brother. Now, usually, these attitudes are covered up in the wolves. They do a great job of looking like sheep, but every now and then, their true nature is revealed. John has been around for a while. He has been a pastor for a while at the time that he is writing this book. And there are some of us who have been around for a while also. 
and we've seen these sorts of things go on. I'm going to tell you a story, a very difficult story, about someone that I shall call Bob and someone that I shall call George. We had a church meeting, and it was not the best of church meetings. You know, there's some uh, church meetings where everything goes well. Well, this is exactly the opposite of everything that was good. And during this church meeting, Bob kept saying and doing things that were not biblical. And George was rather upset about this. And so George was, at, uh, was there with his Bible, and, and George would flip over to such and such a verse, and he would, he would look at Bob, and he would say, look, you can't do that. Here's what the Bible says. Why are you saying this? And every time he did that, Bob would get more and more upset. Well, towards the end of the meeting, I had this image that is stuck in my mind that I can't get rid of, and it is a picture of Bob and George. And Bob who has been refusing to do things that the Bible says the entire meeting, is extremely upset with George, who is requiring him to do things that, uh, that the Bible says. And Bob is standing there screaming at the top of his lungs at George, pointing his finger and shaking it and, and acting in an extremely threatening manner. And George, on the other hand, is doing this right here. He has his feet well apart of his, uh, of his shoulders, he has his hands behind his back, and he's doing that for a reason. He thought that, uh, that, that Bob was about to hit him as hard as he could. And he had his hands behind his back with his, with his, with his you know, just lot there so that he wouldn't dare strike back. And he had his feet apart because he knew that he was about to get hit. And those, the rest of us in the room honestly thought that, uh, that Bob was going to do that. Now, what exactly is going on? Well, you see, the wolf... Bob did not want to do what the Bible said, and he hated anybody that was going to try to make him do that. And so 99% of the time, he looked like he was a great Christian. In fact, he was a deacon in the church. Everybody voted on him. They said, this guy is going to be a great deacon. Maybe not. But there was this one time where all of a sudden, cracks came in the facade. And you could see a little bit of that wolfish nature up underneath the sheep's clothing. You could see something that didn't appear to be right. John brings this up because wolves didn't somehow disappear after the New Testament was written. Wolves are still a problem today. There are going to be times where there are people within the church that are there who are there for entirely the wrong reasons. And every now and then you'll see this jealousy, you'll see this pride, you'll see the hatred of the things of God, just like you saw within Cain. It'll be manifested in things like backbiting and lies and gossip. These are the sort of tracks that wolves leave. And there may be some situation in your life where you have to confront one of these people, where you have to say, Brother, is there something that is wrong in your life? How would you do that? When you do that, God is your model. How did God confront Cain? He did so with gentleness, didn't he? He did so with gentleness. Well, if the holy God, the almighty God, confronts a murderer with gentleness... 
how much more should you, a sinner, confront another sinner with gentleness? So if you ever have to talk with a wolf, remember to be gentle. I think that there is a second reason that, God, that, uh, that John is bringing up this whole thing with Cain. The second reason is expressed in verse 13. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Who exactly is the world? The world is people in opposition to God. People who are in alliance with whatever the culture happens to teach about morality at the time. People that don't love God. That is the world. The world is going to hate you just like Cain hated Abel. Cain is sort of prototypical of the world's hate that you're going to see throughout the rest of the entire Bible. Think back to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's as though the rest of the Bible is like an explanation of this one simple verse. You see there are going to be, there's, uh, there begin, the, the situation begins with enmity between the woman and the serpent. There is enmity between the woman and the serpent. And that is something that is carried on in the rest of the Bible. There are going to be people that you could describe as spiritual children of the woman and spiritual children of the serpent, and they will remain in opposition. There are some that are going to believe like Eve believed, and we could say that they are, in a sense, her children. There are some that are going to hate God. And those are the ones, they're the seed of the serpent. And all of this culminates ultimately in warfare between Satan and one particular seed, one particular offspring of the woman. Satan is going to bruise that man's heel. He's going to hurt him. But that man that is coming is going to crush the head of the serpent. Where did that happen? It happened at the cross, didn't it? Where Jesus was hurt for a little while, but where Satan was crushed forever. That is what is predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so, after this pronouncement is made in chapter 3 we immediately go into chapter 4 and then what do you see you see the whole Cain and Abel thing as soon as you see this prophecy you see an example of the prophecy working out as soon as you see the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman you see how the seed of the serpent strikes out at the seed of the woman there is one who loves God like Eve, and there is one who hates God like Satan, and then the child of Satan strikes out at the child of the woman. John Currid says, while the story of Cain and Abel is to be understood as historical, yet it also symbolizes the age-long battle between good and evil, right and wrong, and between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Well, later in the Bible, we see this theme developed. Did Pharaoh like the children of God? 
No, he did not. He enslaved them. He hated them. What about the Philistines? What about Goliath? What about the Canaanites in general? It seems as though there are all of these people who don't love God, who are after the children of God. What about the New Testament? Well, there is a theme of persecution that goes throughout the entirety of the New Testament in which the world hates you because you are a Christian. And what about even in the book of Revelation? Well, once again, you see that these people in the world who don't love God continually strike out at those who do. So don't be surprised if the world hates you. If you do what is right at work, if you do what is right regarding your friends, if you speak boldly about Christ and his love, people should like you, but they're not. They're going to hate you. You will be hated if you're doing what God calls you to do. Now, it may not be blatant and outward. It probably will not result in murder, but it will be hate. And murder is really just hate that is all grown up. You can expect at least to be hated. Now, that's what brotherly love isn't. Let's talk about what brotherly love is. John loves his comparisons. He loves to take these opposites and talk about both of them. He likes to talk about things like darkness and light, truth and lies, life and death, hate and love. And so he says this, this is the message that you have heard from the, the beginning that we should love one another. They have certainly heard this before, haven't they? How did they probably hear the Gospel of John? They probably heard it from his mouth. Think about it. If you want to hear the Gospel of John, you have to pick up a Bible and read it. They probably heard him say it from beginning to end. Well, he has given them this, this message before. It's something that they have heard ever since they first believed. In John 13, 34, he gives this commandment. In John 15, 12, he gives this commandment. They have heard this mentioned uh, not only in his Gospel, but even in his letter. They should know what this is and so they have heard this commandment before and so he gives them an example of this love so that they can then follow after it how should you love your brother you should love your brother like this by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers so how are you to love other people you're to love them in the same way that Jesus loved you when he went to the cross. And you see this again and again in the Bible. James Montgomery Boyce says, there's hardly a verse in the New Testament that speaks of God's love that doesn't also speak about the cross. Did you know that? It's amazing. Do you want to know what God's love is like? All you have to do is look at one example, the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How much did God love you? How much did God the Father love you? He sent his own son to die for you. He gave him as a sacrifice for your sins. Romans 5.8 God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Galatians 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is the love of God like? It is expressed on the cross. This is what we sang this morning. Come behold the wondrous mystery, the perfect Son of Man. In his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery of Christ, the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Those are the words that came out of our mouth this morning. Think about them for the rest of the day, because that is an expression of what God's love is like. And when you realize how much God loved you by sending his son to die for you, when you realize how much God the Son loved you by offering himself as a sacrifice for your sins, that becomes the model for how you are to treat others. Who is a person in your life who is difficult to love? We shall call him Mr. Jerkface or Mrs. Jerkface, as the case may be. Who is that person who is difficult to love? I'm giving you homework today. What? Preachers aren't supposed to. I'm a math teacher too, okay? And if there's one thing that is sure, the math teacher is never going to let you out of class without giving you homework. We're the ones that always give you homework. We're the jerks. But hey, that's interesting, isn't it? Maybe I'm Mr. Jerkface. Anyway, um, (laughs) this is your homework. I want you to think about Mr. Jerkface, the person that is difficult to love. And I also want you to think about the love that God expressed towards us on the cross. And I want you to ask yourself, How am I to love Mr. Jerkface? I'm supposed to love him like God loved me on the cross. What is that going to look like in my life? That is your homework, to think about that. 